Well, today is, um, is going to be a little bit different. Uh, last year, we, uh, we started what will probably be an annual event that we call Story Sunday. And um, <clears throat> the heart behind Story Sunday can be found in Psalm 102. And I'm going to read one verse out of Psalm 102 for you that just kind of gives you the heart behind why we do this. We have a story team here at the Austin Stone. These guys are some of the uh, most creative and amazing um, Bush, what would we call you guys? Storytellers? That'll work? Storytellers through video, through different um, venues of art. They love to tell the stories of God, and they're really, really good at it, which uh, you're about to see here in just a minute. But uh, let's read this together. Psalms 102, verse 18. This is the heartbeat behind our story team here at the, the Stone. It says, let this be recorded for a generation to come <clears throat> so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Let me say that again. Let this be recorded for the generation to come so that people yet to be created may praise the Lord. Again, the, the heartbeat behind our telling of stories here at the Austin Stone is to record the stories of the faithfulness of God for generations to come. I don't know if you guys have noticed it, but we live in a tumultuous time on this planet, amen? It's, it, the times that we live in are difficult. There's so much hate and strife and pain in our world today that we just felt like as a church, it's important for us to record the stories of the faithfulness of God uh, for our children and our children's children, that they can look back on our generation and see that God, even in these days, he was moving and changing people's lives. And last year, we, we kind of focused on stories of mission, if you will. In other words, we told Stories about people that were living their lives on mission for God from our church. But what we're going to do today, we're going to tell three stories, and they're, all three of them are amazing. But if you force me to kind of come up with a theme or a thesis for the three stories we're going to show you today, they would be this. It's God's faithfulness in the midst of suffering. And all three of these families, we're going to tell you their story today. All, through, uh, all of them have gone through some incredibly difficult circumstances that have really pushed them to the limits of their faith and push them to the limits of their endurance. But what we're gonna see is that even in those places, God shows up. That even when we've kind of at the end of our rope, God is still there to carry us and that's what we're gonna see. And so the first story we're gonna show you is a story of an incredible woman named Molly Graham. And um, her husband is Aaron's bass player, Matt. And Molly is gonna tell a really courageous story about her struggle with an eating, disor eating disorder. And so this is incredibly powerful. Let's put your seatbelt on and uh, let's watch this together. I remember being about 20 years old and just looking around and seeing everyone around me so dissatisfied with their body and uh, just how unhappy they were that I just made this statement to myself that I will never be like them. I will never be unhappy. I'm in control. Uh, I can be perfect and the way that I can achieve that is by having the perfect body. And over time, that desire just manifested itself into an eating disorder where I was really not eating much of anything.
my meals were very calculated, constantly counting calories and thinking about, you know, what, what, are, what are basically the least amount of calories that I could consume in a day. Uh, maybe that would look like a grapefruit in the morning and a handful of nuts at lunch and a piece of fruit in the afternoon and some oatmeal at night. It took a long time for me to realize that what I was doing wasn't normal. You know, I was always thinking about what I could be eating, what I should be eating, what I was gonna eat in the next few hours, what I was gonna eat next week. It just became something that I was obsessed with and that I could not let go. Restricting what I ate made me feel like I was in control and that, honestly, I was, that I was better, that I was good enough. I was better than the people around me. It made me feel prideful. It made me feel like I was just good. I looked in the mirror and I was just focused on one area of my body. I was just focused on my stomach. That's all that I really cared about. I didn't see my body as a whole. I didn't see what other people were seeing. People would say things like, oh, like, did you lose some weight? And then slowly over time, the inflection would change. And so it, it went from, did you lose weight? To, did you lose weight? And I realized um, that people around me were noticing something and that it wasn't a good thing. I went from being excited about the weight that I was losing to being really insecure about it. I remember one day I was trying on clothes and I was in a dressing room alone and just looking in the mirror and turning around and just seeing no fat on my body, just bones were poking out um, my shoulders, my back, um, just everywhere. It made me feel shameful. Like, what have I done? You become addicted to control. You become addicted to not eating. And it's not a rational thing anymore. It's not something that you can just snap out of. In the middle of everything, in the middle of my eating disorder, I applied for um, a short-term trip. I joined a team of about 20 people, and we went to basically just share the gospel with college-age students. My first night, I received um, a little note from my roommate for the summer that said, I just want to let you know, I used to struggle with an eating disorder. If you ever want to talk about anything, please know that I am here. You are worthy, you are beautiful, you're supposed to be here. I can't wait to get to know you this summer. And I, I approached her about it and I was like, thanks for writing this letter. You know, why do you think I have an eating disorder? And she told me uh, that the way that I looked at my pizza, she knew. And I think from that moment, I really knew that God had a different plan for me than I thought. 
He really moved in me, and uh, He led me to a place where I was on my knees. If I couldn't control what I ate and what my body looked like, then I just wasn't happy. I just realized that I am worshiping the God of control and that I am not okay. He revealed that to me as sin, and He revealed that to me as my idol. I was initially ashamed. I felt overwhelmed by my sin and overwhelmed by my guilt. I think up until that point, I just thought of myself as pretty perfect, as like pretty sinless, honestly. I didn't realize that I was as broken as I was, and I didn't want to be. That the idea of being broken was terrifying to me, and it was embarrassing to me. When I got back to the States, I put to practice confessing this sin to the people that knew me and loved me the most. I started seeing a nutritionist, and she was someone who helped me practically fight my battle. I also joined um, support groups and various Bible studies that were directed towards women with eating disorders. So I felt like I had a safe place where I could relate to other women and other women could relate to me, and we were battling together. And I married. And life is different now because I have someone who's keeping me accountable at all times. Matt knows my entire history and my entire battle with my eating disorder. He practically helps me fight in ways by asking me the tough questions. He's the person in my life who encourages me and he's the one who reminds me of who I am. He it makes me feel beautiful, and um, he reminds me of my worth in Jesus. It's been a slow healing process of daily fighting my sin and daily choosing God and choosing His glory over my own. I am faced with the choice to eat food or not eat food every day and um, it's still difficult at times. Um, there are some days where it feels like I am free and that I don't have to think about it at all, and there are some days where a lie will enter into my brain. You know, you shouldn't eat that. And I have to make a conscious decision in that moment to remind myself of truth and to be aware that this thought that is in my mind is not from God and that it's a lie from the enemy and that it's rooted in me finding my identity in something that is apart from Christ. I've spent so many days wishing that I had never had an eating disorder and hating God for doing this to me. I've spent so many days hating food and just not being thankful and not being grateful that this is the way that he's built our bodies, that we need food. But years later, I'm so grateful for this struggle and I'm so grateful that this is my story, that God handed me over to my deepest desire to be thin, 
and to have this body and to be in control so that I could see that that desire was empty and that it wasn't enough. Sometimes he doesn't miraculously take the thorn out of our flesh, but he allows us to struggle with our sin and to fight our sin. And so if that's what God needed to do in order to show me that he is enough and that he is good and that he is trustworthy and he is the God that I should worship, then I'm so thankful for it. He showed me that my sin does not define me, that I was once a slave to sin and now he's made me a slave to righteousness. That means that I am clean, that I am saved, that I am righteous, that I am holy. It means that I'm perfect because Jesus was perfect for me. And so when God looks at me, he sees Jesus. You know, there is so much good theology in that video. There is a, a strain of theology out there that says that if you're struggling with something, if you just have enough faith, God's going to take it from you. And that couldn't be farther from the story of the scripture. And she said something in that video that is so profound. She said, sometimes God doesn't take our thorn away in order to show us that he is enough for us. And, you know, one of the things that I love about Molly's story is that we have a tendency in the church throughout my life, I've noticed that when we tell stories, we have a tendency to tell stories of complete victory. Somebody has an addiction, somebody has an issue with sin, and then God sweeps in and completely heals them of that, and everybody claps, and it's amazing, and that does happen. But more often than not, our story is Molly's story, where God allows us at times to struggle with something, sometimes throughout our entire lives, to show us that in our weakness, he is made strong in our lives. And also to show us this, that our process of becoming to look more like Jesus is exactly that. It's a process. And that's what I love about Molly's story. I want to do a couple things real quick. Um, what Molly did today is that she kind of stood up and publicly confessed her sin and publicly confessed her struggles. That is rare and that is not easy to do. That takes a lot of courage. So can you guys give her a round of applause right now? That is incredible. And the second thing I want to do, and we're going to do this ever, throughout the videos today, is, um, is one of the things that we've kind of noticed at the Austin Stone is that when somebody takes the step to um, share their story, we've just seen this over and over again, the enemy inevitably comes after them. Um, a lot of times specifically in the area that they have confessed the goodness of God in. And so I've asked Val to come up and just pray for Molly right now. So would you bow your heads, join me, let's pray together for Molly and Matt's strength moving forward. Father, we thank you for the story that you've written in Molly's life. God, we thank you for the grace that you've shown her. God, the strength that you gave her in the midst of this darkness and this eating disorder. God, we, we know that you have great purpose in that, Lord. And as she has seen victory, as she has walked out of that, God, we pray that you would continue giving her grace that you would continue strengthening her, and that, God, when Satan tempts her to despair and tempts, tempts her to remember this as a, as a dark spot of her past, God, would you remind her and set it in her heart that that was a moment that you grabbed her, that you pulled her into this great story, 
God, that your plan for that was to bring good to her and not harm. And God, I just pray that you would continue helping her as she walks out this life to remember in all the rest of her story that's still yet to be written, that all the struggles that are standing before her in the future, God, that she would rem remember that you are a God that saves, that you are a God that provides, and that, that she cannot outrun your grace. God, we pray that you would remind her that. And God, we pray for anyone um, in this room right now who might be struggling with this, God, that you would give them courage through Molly's story, that her story would be a message of hope. God, that you can overcome anything. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Next story we're going to show you is the story of Brian and Lisa Binkendorfer. And they have gone through some pretty incredible um, struggles with their, with their health and um, how they found kind of a a faithfulness of God and a, and a joy in the Lord that they never saw, it, uh, saw coming through their trials. And so let's watch this together. My dad was diagnosed with cancer in fall of 2014. I mean, he, he fell into this really rare category where they didn't have any research, and so they didn't, you know, things were really bleak from the outset, and there was no clear-cut, there was no clear-cut path to healing. It was probably about a year later from his original diagnosis that we knew, okay, we're in for a really tough fight here. All of the cancer that had grown on his spine had, was just causing all kinds of pain. Couldn't get out of the house. And so we knew that unless God gave us a miracle, so this might have been his, you know, the end of it. And that's when that's when the, those doubts really began to set in. If in the scriptures, God just welcomes us to pound on the doors of heaven and ask him to do something, why, why wouldn't he answer all the prayers that we were asking? And so I wrestled with this inward struggle really for, I mean, most of my dad's cancer. I think it wasn't until Lisa was diagnosed that I think God started to reshape my view of why he would give something like this to anybody. I found a mass that caused us to kind of be concerned. And so we decided to give it a week, went and had it imaged. And honestly, I dropped my kids off at a friend's house with not that much concern. I kind of thought, oh, it's okay. I'm sure it's nothing. With everything that's going on in our family, surely it's nothing. And we wait for a really, really long time. And my prayer was just constant of asking and pleading that it would not be cancerous, that we don't walk this road that we're already walking with Brian's dad. So they sat us down and told us that I did, in fact, have breast cancer. And it was a four centimeter mass that needed to be removed. And we just got into the car and sat there in the parking lot and just started weeping. Watching 
Brian's dad go through the physical suffering and the emotional suffering that he went through uh, with cancer. And then having my own diagnosis of cancer, it obviously brought on a different fear for me of seeing what he went through and knowing that I could in turn go through the same pain and seeing the way that our children endured that with with their grandfather and how, how would they handle that with their mom? Uh, how, would, how would Brian be able to handle his dad going through cancer and his wife? How do I be a mom? How do I be a wife? How do I be a follower of Jesus through all of this suffering while also trying to support my father-in-law who is suffering? I've never longed for heaven more than I have in my entire life. How do you, how do you even begin to entertain the thought of losing your dad and, and your wife? And uh, so I didn't even really know how to process it. I'm a pastor, I tell people all the time what the scripture says about who our God is. And for 30 years of my life, I've been taught and I've had this constant intake of God is good, He's a healer. He, he, he can do the impossible. And here I am facing the reality for myself. Like, do I actually believe this thing? But, I mean, you, you don't want to say that to anybody. I don't even want to say that to myself. What I know to be true of God is that all of my suffering is actually doing something inside of me. I know that to be true. To begin to apply that to our circumstance is a whole nother thing. Some, somehow there's intention in all of these things for my life. I'm struggling to see what the purpose is. We decided to finally schedule my surgery. I mean, I couldn't lift my arms above my head for two months, let alone chop a tomato or turn on the water to give my children a bath. I had to rely on my husband for that. How could I care for my children? How could he care for our children when he was caring for me? I mean, I was extremely vulnerable and not knowing where my future was in regards to my health, not knowing where our family's future was in regards to my health let alone everything else that was going on in the backdrop. I was about five weeks post my surgery, and we noticed some tendencies in Reagan that were a little off, and we decided to email uh, our pediatrician, and he said, you, you need to bring her in today. My heart starts racing. Like, you're talking about my baby now. Like, this is one of the four children that God's entrusted to us. And that surely there's something wrong with her, especially in light of everything else that's going on. They were pretty confident that she had type 1 diabetes. I distinctly remember one of the moments when they were teaching us how to give the shot, and Reagan just ran straight into the bathroom in the hospital. And I went into the bathroom to go get her, and she's just curled up in a ball behind the toilet. And I decided to go out, physically pull my daughter out of the corner of the bathroom. And I just, I'm just sitting here going, I don't, how can I do this every 
every freaking day for the rest of her life. The thought of knowing that if she goes too low, she can go into a coma. And if she stays too high in her blood sugar for too long, then it can cause serious life-long effects to her vision, to her hearing, to her growth. I'm playing a game for the rest of my life with my daughter's blood sugar. And so it's frustrating whenever I know God is in control and I, and I believe that he is, but yet for whatever reason, he's choosing not to reveal to me the purpose with which he has my family going through all of these different circumstances. I'm talking about, I'm talking about how to keep my daughter alive. And I'm talking about the fact that I don't, I still don't know if we got everything inside of Lisa. And I remember thinking to myself, Brian, remember everything you've walked through that has taught you. The only place that you can find joy is actually in, in Jesus. Everything that you've walked through, don't forget that. I remember her um, telling us one day, I can't wait until I don't have type 1 diabetes anymore. How do you tell your daughter you're going to have this for the rest? Like, life's not changing for you. Like, how do, how do we have joy in that? I, I, I really don't know how to explain it, except God had begun to teach us a new definition of joy. Trusting God in those moments of knowing I want to care for my daughter physically, and I couldn't. But by God's grace, I was able to still care for her emotionally and remind her that, that God is still good in these, in these situations and is sovereign over her little life. It helps to know that the only thing that can divine her is Jesus. And the only thing that can divine Brian's dad, Brian, me, all of our children is, is Jesus. When, you know, our grip on life began to kind of, um, fade away, the Holy Spirit began to do a work in us through things that we would never invite into our life. Dad gets diagnosed with cancer, year and a half journey. Lisa gets diagnosed with cancer. Reagan gets diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. And then Dad passes away. And then only three months later, Reagan gets diagnosed with another autoimmune disease. And I remember thinking to myself, I was done with suffering. But it was him um, instilling in me a much deeper understanding of what hope I had in Christ, which was that suffering in this life doesn't end after you have a short, difficult season. Because God may have another series of difficult circumstances waiting for me next month. But one day, all of the suffering that we're going through right now is not going to be here anymore. And now I'm left with clinging to only, only one thing, that just being with Jesus is the fullness of joy.
you know, I think here's the question I want to ask is, you know, why does God allow things like that to happen? I think that, that for me has been one of the most difficult questions to answer and ask of the Lord throughout my life is why? God, why do you allow things like that to happen? And one of the reasons that I love their story is something that Brian says. He said, I came to a place where I couldn't imagine having joy again. Then he said something, and I hope you caught it. He said, but God has given us a new definition of joy. And then later he said, being with Jesus is the fullness of joy. And in James chapter 1, verse 2 uh, the writer of James says, consider it all joy. That word all is key there. Consider it all joy. My brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. And church, what the Bible just said is that there is an experience and there is a level of joy that you can only find on the other side of suffering. It's only on the other side of suffering that you can find this kind of joy, and that's the kind of joy that Brian was talking about. And so what I wanna do is um, I wanna pray for Brian and Lisa and Reagan. I've gone through cancer twice, and so I'm not letting anybody else pray for them but me. Um, I discovered something when I walked through cancer twice. I did not want any Southern Baptist praying for me when I was walking through cancer because they always say, oh, Lord, if it be your will, I pray that you would heal Matt. I wanted charismatics praying for me. I wanted the Lord in the name of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, heal them, bind Satan, amen, right? And so that's how I'm going to pray today for Brian and Lisa and Reagan. This is a little crazy. I just felt led today to do this. I didn't think about it till. 30 seconds ago, if you're walking through cancer or you have a loved one that's walking through cancer, would you stand up? We want to pray for you. You stand up. And, okay. Anybody else? I know that's tough. I know there's more than 10 people. Who's, all right. Um, if you're near them, would you please kind of raise your hands toward them and let's pray for their healing. <clears throat> Father, I am more convinced than I've ever been in my entire life that you're real. And so God, I speak right now to the creator of heaven and earth, the one that formed the universe with the sound of his voice, the one in a matter of days formed the heavens and the earth, the continents, the oceans, you're the one God that said to the ocean, you can only go this far and no more. And so God, we pray to you today knowing that you are all-knowing, you are all-powerful, you can do anything you wanna do. And so God, I pray for Brian and Lisa and Reagan, and I pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the great physician, that you would heal them. Father, I pray for Lisa that you would take every cell in her body that is not aligned with your will, that is cancerous, and you would remove it in the name of Jesus Christ, I ask it. And Father, I pray for all those around the city of Austin right now in the sound of my voice that are standing up, who are walking through cancer, that have loved ones that walk through cancer right now. God, I pray in the name of Jesus, believing God that you are the one that can do this, Lord, we ask that you would heal them, that you would give them more days, God, to proclaim the greatness of the glory of God. 
Father, we love you and we trust you, but we ask this because we are your children. And we know that you can. And so we pray that you will. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. The final story that we're going to show you today is um, of Philip and Kim Ellis and uh, their journey of adopting their son, Ethan. And it's an incredible story. We hope it encourages you today. So let's go ahead and see it. Foster care brings out this helplessness in you. You have no control over the situation at all. You have no say in this child's life. You go to court and you sit in there and you're not allowed to say anything. And you're the one person that knows every single thing about this child and every single need that they have. You're in charge of their life, yet you have no say in anything that happens. I remember I had laid down for a nap one day and just prayed, like, I just am really ready for another placement. God, please, like, give us a kid, you know? I had an email telling us about this little boy that was in the NICU, and um, he had a lot of medical issues going on, and he was born at 24 weeks. He weighed two pounds. We knew that there was some brain damage, my thoughts were kind of, you know, if it were my own biological child, I wouldn't question that, you know? You would take care of that kid and you would um, be with him in the NICU and you would bring him home and do whatever you had to do. We ended up going to the NICU and we met him there and um, brought him home that day. <laughs> explained that Ethan had an aortic aneurysm and that um, it could burst at any time and if it did he would die instantly. It was super scary to think that he could come to our house um, for however long we would love him so much and care for him but then in an instant it could all be just over with. From the beginning, we didn't really know what we were getting into with Ethan. I had doctor's appointments probably every day, every other day for months. We were in and out of the hospital, I think, seven different times. And as the months went on, we started to notice that all of the medical things, all of the sickness and health issues were kind of resolving themselves a little bit. and. Um, I would say that the second half of our journey through foster care with Ethan was harder 
um, on the foster care side of things. The goal was to get him home to his family. He started having overnight visits and weekend visits, and um, he eventually did go back home. And that was really, really hard for us. At that point, he had been with us for a year and a half. So we had grown to love him so much, and he was part of our family. It was just kind of everything you can imagine feeling all at once. Like we were really excited for them and happy for them, but we were scared and nervous for Ethan because he didn't know them all that well. I mean, he knew us as his family. And our son, Caleb, was getting to know him and um, to think uh, of how we would have to explain that to our son was just a hard thought. It's something that's not natural, you know? You don't usually just have a person in your life, and your family, for a year, year and a half, and then release them to another family, um, and there's no expectation of, you know, keeping in touch or whatnot. But that's kind of what foster care is. I mean, we dropped them off, and um, then we left. And part of me was excited to have kind of our lives back in, in a way. Um, part of me was just um, broken for even feeling that. Ashamed like for thinking like, oh, our life just got a little bit easier. I was concerned. I was all bunch of different emotions. I remember maybe like a week and a half after he had gone home, I remember I was doing laundry and I found like a piece of his laundry and I just thought like, I wonder what he's doing right now and if he's okay and if he's getting the care he needs, if he's had to go to the hospital at all, if, if he's been making all of his doctor's appointments and I was just worried for him. We loved him as, as much as we could, but that doesn't even compare to the love that God has for this little kid. And, and we just had to trust and believe that. We had to trust that he was in control and had a plan. Even though we didn't see it, we couldn't tell what it was. Hey, you gonna smile for me? One day I was just out running errands and it had been about two weeks since Ethan had gone home. And um, I got a call from our caseworker. I answered and he said, hey, where are you? What are you doing? Are you at home? And I was like, no, I'm, I'm out. And he said, well, I've got Ethan here with me and I'm bringing him over in an hour. of course, excited to see him and to know what was going on the last two weeks. Um, but I think that we were also fearful of, this has been the hardest you know, year and a half of our lives, and are we about to get into that all over again? I think that during that time, uh, we really learned to just trust God and lean on God and to not live in fear of like the unknown and what may or may not happen. I mean, obviously there was no question. We weren't gonna say no to having him back. So um, I went straight home and we waited and an hour later he was at our house.
We kind of knew or thought when he came back, like, okay, if he's coming back into our home, this is most likely going to be permanent. Um, I mean, we always knew that if he did need to be adopted, we would do that. There was no question of that. Do each of you solemnly swear or affirm the testimony you give today will be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Okay. And having heard the evidence, the court finds that all the legal requisites have been fully satisfied, but most importantly, that this adoption is in Ethan's best interest. That clearly is the case. He's it's right at home with this family, where he belongs. Therefore, the adoption is granted. So he is yours and you are his. Congratulations. I would have missed it if I didn't actually say thank you guys for coming. Thank you for um, just being there for me and Kim for the past two years of our life. Um, as we have been on our, our journey with Ethan, you guys mean the world to us. We definitely could not have um, gotten through the past two years if it hadn't been for our friends and our family. And so just thank you for being there. And we love you guys so much. Back to the party. I think foster care and adoption is a incredible example and picture of what God did for lost sinners. He came and he got me and he picked me up out of the mess that I was in. He cleaned me off and took me into his home and adopted me and called me his son. When I was far away and when I was broken and when I was sinful and when I didn't have anything to offer God, he came for me. So on the day of the adoption, the judge made it final and he said, he is yours and you are his forever. Everything that we had been through for the past over two years was over and it was final and we didn't have to wonder anymore. Ethan didn't have to wonder. It felt like this is where he belonged and this is the way that the story was supposed to go all along. great I love what the judge said that was not staged that was not a line he was given but he says the adoption is final he is yours and you are his forever and then the gavel came down bam and that is one of the most beautiful pictures of what God does for us that you're ever ever going to see because the Bible teaches us folks that God doesn't just save us from our sin but that he adopts us as his sons and as his daughters. And the moment that you trust in a Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, the Lord declares, I am yours and you are mine forever. What a beautiful picture that that is. I love that story and I also love that story because not only does it show that, but it also shows the image of God in the least of these among us. The world is screaming from the rooftops that children like Ethan are not worth life, they're not worth raising up, that they're to be discarded, 
And what we are saying as believers is that every single child is worth living, is worth living their life because they bear the image of God. And Kim, Ethan shines with the image of God. It's beautiful. He's beautiful. I want to do something. Bush, Bush is the head of our story team. He's adopted children before and he's friends with Philip. And so I asked him to come up and, and Philip, come on up, man. And Kim, come on up. We'd love for just to, for folks to see you. They didn't know they were doing this. So um, will y'all give them a hand? And we're going to pray for them real quick. So. Father, I just want to thank you for Kim and Philip and the obedience that you've given them and their family, Father, that you called them to step into the, the very difficult situation of foster care, not just once, but twice, Lord, they stepped to it, into it. And, Lord, they opened up their family and they adopted two amazing boys into their family. And, Lord, we thank you for that. And, God, Lord, foster care and adoption is not easy. Lord, it's a difficult road from the beginning to the to the end, Father. Lord, they are going to be battling with these kids every day, fighting for them, pointing them to Jesus, Lord. And I thank you for Kim and Philip to be obedient to that. And I pray that you would continue to give them the endurance to do that, God. We love them and we're so thankful for them. And we pray uh, for Ethan, Lord, that one day he will come to know Jesus because of the love that Kim and Philip have for him. him. And God, I pray for the hundreds of families around our, our campuses, Lord, that have answered the call to step up to foster and to adopt, Lord. Whether they are in the thick of the storm of a foster care, Lord, I pray that you would give them just the, the hope, Lord, to keep fighting. Fight for those kids, Lord, to, to fight for those families, Lord, that, that you would give them, um, that Jesus, you would be glorified in all of that, Father. And I pray for the families who have answered the call to adopt, Lord, that you would just bless them, Father, and that you would uh, knit the hearts of their children and them together, and Lord, that you would bond them, and Lord, that you would um, just increase uh, just the, the fruit in their families because of it, Father. And I pray for the people at our campuses that have heard this story, Lord, that don't know Jesus, and they have seen this picture of the gospel. Lord, I pray that people will come to faith today, Father, because of this, Father. Lord, we thank you for the Ellis's. We thank you for the gift of adoption that you adopted us into your family. And God, we celebrate that today. In your name we pray, amen. As we get ready to worship the Lord for his faithfulness, let's just pray one more time. Um, why don't you go ahead and stand up. Let's get ready to sing back to God. And I just want you to take a second as we bow our heads, just prepare your hearts. Think about God's faithfulness in your life, what he's brought you through. And so we're not just singing for the stories that were told today on the screen, but we're, we're singing and we're praising God for your story and for my story. And so take just a second, think about his faithfulness, pray to him and thank him for that. Father, it is true that there is nothing on this earth, nor height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons. There is no created thing in all of this world that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, not cancer, 
not disabilities, not eating disorders, not sin. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We sing to you today, God. We worship you today, not because it's what we do at the end of a service, God. We do it because of your faithfulness, because you are good to us. Even in the darkest moments of our lives, God, you are faithful. And so it is a joy now to sing to you. I pray there would be a sweet sound in your ears. In Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.